Tom, what's, what's happening? How are you, hey, my friend? How are you guys? Doing well. Good deal. Where are you at, Florida? I'm in Florida. Weather's beautiful, and I'm in here instead of out playing golf. Oh, hell, I hear you. Hell, sometimes, you know. It's a little chilly here. Where's everyone else at? Mike, where, Mike, where are you at? I'm here in Kansas City. Yeah. Just got back. I hear you. Kind of had to run my dad around a little bit today. He's 92 years old and had a full uh, well, procedure done. So just kind of ran in the house here and uh, got on board here with you guys. Heck yeah, I appreciate it. Cool. Sounds awesome. Did we ever uh, get a hold of anyone at CGB, Todd, or no? Yeah, uh, but uh, didn't uh, Greg get back to you and say that gentleman was coming? Yeah. I called emails between you and him, and I just thought it was all set up. All right, I don't, I don't, I don't think they, followed, they never followed up with me then. So, and then uh, Nate was, should be on. Then Nate, yeah. Yeah, is he getting on? He had that article from yesterday. It's pretty interesting that he sent over. But yeah, crazy times in uh, transportation world for sure. I, I would say <laughs> definitely, definitely uh, one for the book. So what uh, what are we thinking? What are you guys seeing? Tom, you want to go ahead and maybe uh, introduce up and Mike, you jump in and okay, we'll go from there. Well, yeah, oddly ahead, enough, Tom. you know, we're not – we're seeing the railroads perform fairly well. Uh, this precision schedule railroading thing that they started implementing about four years ago is working, particularly once cars get into one terminal. And between the first terminal and the last terminal, trains are moving pretty good. Their service from to pick up from an industry and get it to that first terminal and from the last terminal to the customer uh, really sucks. I mean, it, it, it's worse than, than you could imagine. But at least once we get it on a train, it moves. You know, we, we kind of have a schedule of uh, when the product's going to arrive, uh, unless it's just trains. And the trains, uh, grain trains seem to be moving okay. Uh, you know, volumes are not huge. I mean, I don't, I mean, yeah, intermodal's got an issue here, but uh, every commodity is up from last year on the rails. But, hell, last year was a weak year. So uh, that really uh, is not telling us much. If you If you look at, you know, the record year for the railroads was 2015. If you go back and look at 2015, we're still down about 10% pretty much across the board uh, on all commodities. And we're way down on uh, some commodities like coal. So, you know, in, in general, uh, this year has not been a lot worse than we've seen in other years. I think you're on mute. Yeah, I am. Hey, Mike, what's happening on the trucking and side of things? What do you guys see in the big hiccup? Uh, the big hiccup is the same it's been for the last several years is just the, the driver shortage. Uh, you know, our guys can't find drivers. Everybody's got trucks sitting on the fence. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's I don't think it's easing or anything else. I think it's probably getting worse. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the – that's the that's the number one complaint, Kevin, in our industry that you know they just can't get any you know, qualified drivers. 
and uh, you know freight rates are are up. Uh, so that's probably because of the the driver shortage. You know, there's capacity issue from you know having drivers to getting new equipment replaced to you know with the chip shortage and everything else like that, parts and everything along those lines. So freight rates are up, and uh, you know freight's good. A lot of freight, as Thomas said, and you know, so but it's it's just the same thing. It's just that driver shortage, driver retention. And I think too, there a lot of guys are nervous about the the mandate coming at the, I think it's the end of this month, you know, for over a hundred, you know, a lot of the drivers will just check it in. I mean, I think that's part of the problem right now. A lot of the drivers given up on it. And you know, it's kind of an older demographics of drivers anyway you know probably 50s probably an average age of most drivers and a lot of them just said you know we're not going to do this anymore so they walk away from us i think it's going to get it's going to get worse before it gets better i don't see any any uh resolution in the foreseeable future so yeah one one question i had on the demographics is how many younger guys are coming on board? I mean, I, to be honest, I, I couldn't tell you, I don't know one person under 35 driving a truck. You know, Jordan, you know, that's the problem. And, you know, the, the pay is, you know, it's, has come up. I think every one of our truck lines have taken increases over the last two years. Some of them have as many as two increases in a year to attract drivers. And, and it's still not just happening. I think there's, there's some joint ventures with the ATA and other uh, organizations to try and see if there's somehow some way we can relax some of the guidelines. Right now, you got to be basically to pull for a CDL for a, uh, an over-the-road driver. You've got to be a minimum of 21 years old. Uh, you know, a lot of them want they don't want to hire anybody unless they're 25 with three years' experience. So you know, you got to get that experience somehow, and so. I think they're going to have to drop down into the high school or to the Votech uh, area and, and attract people there, but they're going to have to reduce some of the federal guidelines that um, are prohibiting those drivers from driving. Uh, right now, you can't be an interstate driver if you're 18. So, you know, there's they're going to have to work to that end. But at the same point, you know, how comfortable are you putting an 18-year-old in an 80,000-pound vehicle that goes 70 miles an hour, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, and that's what I, Mike, that, that's what I was told, Mike, a bunch of my buddy, well, a bunch, but some of them that own some trucking companies and other guys that were driving, they said, uh, they said that once COVID hit, it kind of exasperated, just kind of added fuel to the fire on some of the older teams and, you know, husband, wife teams and the older folks that just kind of bowed out and just said, hell with it. They weren't going to, Jack would drive it into California or drive it into New York and battle all the craziness that was going on at the time. Hell, they just kind of checked it in and we haven't been able to replace a lot of those, uh, those drivers, I guess. So that's, yeah, that's. You're exactly right, Kevin. We had a problem before COVID and now it's just kind of escalated. And with the mandate coming, I think it's, that's me. I just think it's going to get worse. Uh, I think there's right now, I think I, Last I saw that, that Bob Costello with ATA said there's 80,000, uh, you know, 
driver, that 80,000 jobs, that's the driver shortage, 80,000 uh, right now. So that's, that's hard to build on, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of them aren't super fans of the vaccine and things. So like you say, they may not. <laughs> exactly. From my experience and having driven a truck all the way through high school and college, I drove over the road for years and worked for truck lines. My brothers, two of my brothers were presidents, or one of them was president, one of them was general manager of a major truck line. Uh, they were van uh, haulers, right. uh, union. But, you know, this... Uh, a lot of these guys are really independent. And when California passed this gig law, you know, the law that said that the Uber drivers and the Lyft drivers had to be employees and couldn't be contractors. My understanding was there was tens of thousands of, of contractors in California that owned their own tractor. They didn't own a trailer, but they, you know, they just hauled freight for somebody else. So whether it was a Snyder or Hunt or whoever it was could contract with them or Walmart, they were just independent drivers. And uh, when they passed that gig law that said that you had to be a, uh, an employee, a lot of those guys didn't want to be an employee. They wanted the flexibility of having their own tractor, driving where they wanted to go, when they wanted to go, accepting loads. And there were a lot of new apps that came out that allowed those guys to be really flexible about which loads they took and where they hauled them and what freight they hauled and when they got back home and, you know, husband and wife teams and that sort of thing. When that law passed, we, we lost a lot of drivers. You know, and it was interesting. There were, we had, you know, just from a company standpoint, we don't write that much out on the West Coast, but there was a strong surge into like Idaho, Texas, all the other states where these guys were making new authorities, uh, establishing residency in other states to go haul there. Yeah, and so, get out of California. But, you know, even then, from an insurance perspective, you know, a new authority, guys coming out you know, wanting to start their own truck line, you know, you're looking at liability insurance anywhere from $15,000 up to 20,000 plus for, to provide liability insurance for one truck yep. for a new authority. And, you know, it's, and, you know, anybody, if they're going to go get hired on somewhere else, they got to have basically two years experience before anybody will take them. So. Well, the pay is getting pretty good out there, though. Some of these, yeah, some of these guys is. are beginning to pay them out. You know, I thought if my wife wanted to see the country, we just, <laughs> I've still got a CDL, so I can, I can get right get back in it. Road. Well, if you're, if you're interested, Thomas, I could hook you up with some good people. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I think I'll stay and fight the railroads. <laughs> good move. The congested warehouses are full. You can't get to a loading door. You just sit and wait for unloading. Even it's dropped up, there's no room. Intermodal terminals or port terminals, it's a quagmire. These guys, they may go from getting three loads a day to one doing short trays in LA. How can you expect them to stay in that? Yeah. Yeah, Nate, where are you at now? Where are you at? You're getting an echo on that thing. Where are you at? In Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, you are? Okay. Perfect. Who are you with? Who are you with right now? I started my own consulting company with a real good friend of mine, Andrew Johnson, who used to be head of government affairs for Google myself. He and I were partners in getting a bunch of rail projects done on um, big show points, college, crossing, upgrading the BMSF line across Iowa and so forth. 
And after I ran FEC, I talked to Andrew and said, you know, the class one railways, as you all know, have made massive reductions in staffing. Average is 25% cut in employment. And guys that can do projects, work with engineering firms, and get communities to back up, back putting the project together, like the local logistics park, Kansas City, and Gardner just west of Kansas City, there's not those people in the railroads anymore. So we're doing it as uh, independent, free-thinking, wild guys and doing pretty good at it, Kevin. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Perfect. Perfect. What, uh, what Mike, you seeing anything on the autonomous side? Any uh, autonomous trucking, self-driving taking place out west or? You guys you know, messing with that much? Not too much. I think, you know, there are those carriers around that are doing kind of the, the railroad type uh, logic, you know, where the trucks drive in tandem and, uh, you know, they're looking at that. Uh, you know, it, it's floating around out there. I don't, we haven't seen that yet. I mean, I know the technology is probably there, uh, but, you know, from a standpoint or from an insurance perspective, where we're, we're going in, you know, it, it's, you know, it's all about the driver right now. Uh, you know, I, we haven't explored that, that much at this point, Kevin. Yeah. Huh. Jordan, Todd, you guys got some things people have written in. Yeah. Even on like the, uh, like the warehouses and um, the logistics of, some pieces i know some guys are saying like on the fertilizer side of things like or uh chemical side of things i guess is they have the chemical but they don't have the lids or um the warehouses don't have the people filling orders how, how much is that backing up or messing with the transportation itself is it messing with it at all or well let me speak just a little bit to that uh, we we are currently looking for distribution centers for some of our clients, uh, large distribution centers, you know, uh, with several rail doors and, you know, a dozen or more truck uh, doors. Uh, and there's just nothing out there in, in the areas we're looking. I don't want to say nationwide, but, you know, we're, we're encompassing some pretty good sized geographic areas and we're not finding any current warehouse uh, space available. Everything that we are quoting, including, Southern California is build a suit. We have one guy uh, in Southern California that has a limited space, about 90,000 square feet of warehouse space. He's the only one that's quoted us in the whole LA market. When you get down into the Southeast, we have about four guys that are all quoting Greenfield warehouse space. There's nothing else available. I mean, we, we, we put out, you know, to all of the major real estate companies, uh, Jones Lang, LaSalle, and all of those guys looking for warehouse space. And they came back and said, no current warehouse space available. So uh, I think because of the logistical log jams that we've had, a lot of companies have just gone out and taken whatever warehouse space was available. And there's, there's just uh, very, very limited space. In fact, I sent Kevin an article a couple of days ago that said that the warehouse space nationwide available right now is about 2%. It's normally above 12%, and currently it's only 2% of available space. So uh, it, it's tight. And not so going to get better. 
so much of our business, you know, for our truckers is, is, you know, just in time delivery. And, you know, and if they don't, if they can't deliver it, you're exactly right. They got to store it in their warehouse it somewhere. And, you know, so if product's not moving, I, I totally agree with you, Thomas, that that's got to be a, that warehousing has got to be a huge issue right now. Well, and if they can't unload it in the warehouse, they store it on the truck. <laughs> that's <laughs> even worse. Uh, they park it, yeah. Let me uh, let me give everyone a big fail, I guess, that maybe you could use for an investment tip. So I was on a call. <laughs> I told some folks this a while back. I was on a call with Crow Brothers. And they were on the call. And as you guys know, they're huge real estate investors globally, nationally, all across the board. Well, they, they see and forecast what you're saying, Tom. I mean, they see this massive push to own uh, warehouse space for the last mile or just in time, like you're talking, like just in time delivery uh that last mile so owning warehouse space they say and, and at least the guys i'm talking with on the big hedge fund side they think it's going to be huge now they said <laughs> they made some critical errors early <laughs> they went in and bought some they bought some strip malls they said or like you know like in our area out here can't you know in the suburban areas like say a strip mall center and things that really kind of early in covid went out of business because they were pressured pretty heavy. So they're buying them at deep discount. But they said they were going to turn those into warehouse spaces in some of these other retail developments. And they said they got smoked and had a early learning curve because the city and the neighborhoods around those locations just bitched a fit because of all the truckers coming in there late at night and trying to drop shit off. So it's like, I could see, you know, and that's why Michelle and I talk, we've been trying to buy some buildings and properties that have easy road frontage highway access uh, just for those reasons, Mike. And Tom, just, I think if you're going to do a warehouse space, which I think a lot of guys are talking about buying some places at a discount and turning it to warehouse space, you best think about the neighborhood around you and how big a fit they're going to throw at the local governments uh, when the truckers are coming in and, and circling the wagons. So I, I thought it was interesting because it's always the shit you never think about that ends up biting you in the ass the most on all, all these investments. You're thinking you're dead right on a warehouse and then the damn neighbor folks blow up about it. So I think you got to be easy for the truckers to get in and off and access. And we watched that, that uh, those people that bought Southview, Mike, out here off 71 Highway, the old golf course, and turned yeah. that into that chewy distribution yeah. center like amazon rented some stuff. I mean, that's probably a perfect move there you know anything probably right off the highway like that you know kevin i came back from up around liberty this morning or this afternoon and you know everything there just south of the river on 435 they've expanded that there's up there by clay como plant you know i'm sure at ford plant they're needing to offload stuff and build warehouse there you go out to bonner springs you know amazon's built all kinds of stuff and to the part, you know, what you guys are saying out there in Gardner, out there at the intermodal facility, all the warehouse space is being built. I mean, it's just exploded and, you know, everywhere in this city, you know, every, it touches all directions outside of Kansas City. Yeah. And I feel like that's going to be a play for a lot of our bigger farmers and producers that are through the Midwest centrally located and got good highway access. There might be some serious real estate plays there. If like Tom's numbers are right, we're way under, underbuilt. So yep. yeah, it makes sense. 
Yeah. So what's another one, guys? Todd, you got anything? Yeah, you guys seen or hear anything about uh, potentially creating a tiered uh, payment or premium system for delivery? I, my understanding is you know, most of the stuff's uh, on a note. You just get delivered when it gets delivered, but with all the backup and stuff, you know, they might start looking at getting the uh, premium stuff out, which would make the, the general line get way, way back behind. But is there any talk on that from you guys' front? The only thing I've heard on that is on high-end merchandise. I mean, in, in the problem we have in the grain business is, is grain is not high-end merchandise. You know, if you're going to do things that are priorities, you're going to do them on intermodal, which in most of the intermodal that's moving quickly now is high-value commodity. I mean, if you think about how many iPads or iPhones you can put out in a, you know, a 20-foot equivalent uh, container, you can put a lot. But if you're putting uh, corn flour in there, then you're in a different world. So... Uh, the, the expediting that we're seeing is on the high-end products that can afford it. You know, we've seen the same. We've got motor carriers who have dedicated uh, lanes and with with shippers and, you know, those guys that, you know, whether it be a, a pharmaceutical or a cell phone or whatever, you know, they get a, they get a premium already. And, you know, and it's, they'll run teams and, you know, those guys will make, they'll, you know, I have one guy who's, hauling uh, pharmaceuticals from one side of the can- uh, country to the other and on two team drivers and each one of them make about 250000 a year. So that gives you an idea of what the cost is. You know, I don't know what the mileage cost is, but in order to pay those drivers that kind of money, that's a, that's a boatload. So tells yeah, you, you, what's- put, you put 25 cents or 30 cents on an iPad or a, a prescription <laughs> drug or something, that's nothing. But when you start that's- putting it on a, on a bushel of grain, you're talking about a different <laughs> I get you. I hear you. That makes sense. I, the, the big buzz right now in our world is this whole fertilizer pinch or problem or shortage that we're going to see coming up. And I think a lot of it's because they we believe that the freight's dislocated. You know, we're going to have seasonalities that create some dislocation, obviously, in rail and in trucking in some select areas where they're talking, some people may not be able to get their hands on some, some fertilizers as we move forward uh, next year. What are you guys hearing on that front? Anything? I really haven't Tom, heard anything on the fertilizer side, but again, you know, from a rail standpoint, once it gets to that first terminal, it's going to move. Uh, the rails still have capacity. Let, I mean, from a re- realistic standpoint, uh, you, you know, yeah, they may have an employee problem and some COVID issues and some people calling in sick or going hunting. We got the holidays coming up. But we're seeing pretty good service. I mean, it's, I would say our service this year's uh, out of the last nine or 10 years, it's equal, if not a little better. You know, we, we, we have about uh, 30 plants that we uh, deal with ag, food, petroleum, ethanol. Uh, all of them are seeing about the same. You know, we, we're not filing as many problem logs as we do some years. Let me, let me qualify that a little bit. The service in the West is a hell of a lot better than the service in the East. The CSX has, has really fallen apart in terms of their service, but, but even them, they're improving some now. So right now we're, we're not having a lot of issues. We're getting stuff delivered when we need it and where we need it. You know, to, to that point, you know, our guys move and you know, where they have problems, a lot of our guys is when you're going in the metropolitan areas, uh, the big, big metropolitan, you know, a lot of them don't want to go there. Uh, they don't have to just because of the infrastructure's not as good. Uh, it takes longer to, to deliver. So, you know, they get paid by the mile, but it just, they're not over the road. So, you know, they get a, 
a premium for when they go to those areas. And, you know, a lot of the drivers don't like going there. They don't, you don't like doing the stop and go and type of traffic. And from an insurance perspective, you know, it dovetails with that. That's where your large verdicts are in those areas. So when they have a lane change or, you know, rear end or something like that, it, it's very costly. So, you know, that, that creates an issue for, you know, people driving into those areas, the insurance rates, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to haul into Chicago or, you know, on any coast, uh, whether it be Houston or East coast, West coast, insurance premiums are going to be higher. So consequently, while the guys are saying, you know, if we're going to go there, we're going to get a premium to go there, uh, inflated rate. So, well, but you have to, if you have to, for another reason too, and that is if you're just in time and you've got a slot, I mean, I used to work with all those truckers that had delivery slots. If you've got mm -hmm. a slot that's at three o'clock in the afternoon to unload and you're going into a big city, man, you've got to be two or three hours earlier. You're not going to hit your spot. I mean, that's so unpredictable the minute you get in a city. Going to Chicago is a lot more unpredictable than going to Ames, Iowa. Right. I mean, right. And and then you sit and wait. And so, you, you know, if you're not if you're not running, that driver's not making any money. If he's sitting, he's he's losing money. What type of uh, what type of pressure are we going to see from all these climate change initiatives? I know, Nate, you sent the uh, article about where we'll be with some of these <laughs> corn and different things. Where are we going to be with all this? Well, the rail side's got a hell of an opportunity, you know, just because the mass that locomotive moves, it produces a third of the CO2 than an equivalent truck move. So they've got a real opportunity here if they can just get their furloughed workers back to work. As Tom mentioned, some of the folks in the East are having a little bit harder time, but they've really got an opportunity here to, to, to do things in the public interest that, that some of the new agenda really likes of, of, of moving more freight on rail. Um, but, you know, overall in the intermodal space, outside of the, you know, the manifest and the shuttle trains, intermodal ain't doing that well. Yeah, it's a little better than overall um, versus last year, but third quarter was down 3% overall for the industry. Intermodal volume was down. You hear Mike and Tom talk about how much pressure there is with motor carriers. That just, that just doesn't pencil. And what's even worse on that is the biggest decline in intermodal traffic. You think it's the ports, right? Kansas, the Kansas City Challenge, the Chicago Challenge, LA. Savannah's having a hard time now. But actually, domestic intermodal, the 53 containers and trailers, that's, that was down 6% in third quarter. That ain't good. And it's all about service. You know, the, the rail's doing the best they can. I, I, I know everybody's working hard. But when you when you cut your staff that much and you had to in COVID, but when you cut and you don't have a practice squad, you don't have backup positions, and then all these challenges are talking about anybody coming back to work, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah but intermodal has to have truck on both ends, and the drayage is where we're running into a lot of problems. I mean, you yeah. talk about LA and all the problems in LA, the problems in LA are drayage. You got to get those damn containers off the dock and get them to a railhead. Uh, and, and you got to have drayage at both ends of any intermodal. I mean, 
we don't run a lot of intermodal, but right, I would say right now, uh, our customers are at zero intermodal because we'd rather have a truck driver take it all the way than just to haul it to the intermodal site and, and get it on a train and try to get it on the other end. So guys, is there any is there any truth to the uh, the crane operator issue that that you, you hear on some news channels that if people saying the cranes are sitting there not moving? You're talking about in the ports? Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, before I address that, let me let me back up a little bit because the question about climate change. We just did a major study for a client that's uh, that asked that specific question. So we went to all of the railroads, but particularly the Western railroads and ask them about the impact of, of climate change and what they were gonna to have to do with their locomotives. And if, if they were looking at going to electric locomotives or if they were looking at electrification of any part of their lines, or if they were looking at uh, emissions out of the locomotives. And you know we've got several different types of locomotives now and these tier five locomotives are a lot more expensive because they're, they emit a lot less carbon. And, and the general consensus was that they're gonna to have to, to go to a much different locomotive in California, maybe the whole West Coast than they are in other parts of the country. Uh, and, and they're gonna be expensive, but yet it's not gonna be near as expensive as, as truckers are gonna to have to deal with on their side. So uh, I don't think the railroads are too worried about that. They, they think they uh, emit so much less than truckers do that they'll be able to, to deal with that, but it is gonna, influence rail rates. They didn't indicate that it would be above four or 5% nationwide, but, but uh, that's, gonna, that's gonna put some pressure on freight rates up. Uh, to your other question about the crane operators, you know, uh, I've had a, a very diverse uh, background in, in transportation and very early on, I was responsible for all of the ports in the US for Continental Grain Company. And dealing with the West Coast ILA was the most difficult experience that I ever got into. The longshoremen out there have rigid contracts. They're very inflexible. I looked it up the other day. If you're unloading a container, every one of those cranes has a 13-person gang. They have a supervisor and a timekeeper for that guy that's sitting up there operating the crane. And the rest of these guys, I don't know what the hell they're doing. But when we used to load grain ships, most of them were standing around with or sitting around doing nothing. So I, I think there's... You know, Biden is such a union guy right now, just say that as it is, that I don't think he's going to convince those unions to do anything different than, they, what, than they've been doing. They get paid for 4,000 hours a year by contract, but they only have to work 2,600 hours a year. And that's all I can say. So any, any, any problem you got with a crane, you got. <laughs> And Tom, the guys in the east, like Savannah, they will typically they might have four to five cranes working a ship. They've got so much congestion. They can't lay boxes down. They'll work three. They just can't. They can't get the production. Whole thing's backing up at the ports due to dray, due to chassis, due to man hours. And I just don't know how we're going to get out of this mess anytime soon. It is, it is not just one place. It's backed up with the entire system. And the thing about intermodal, let's call it international intermodal or even domestic, it doesn't have the market signals like we do in that, right? You don't see an international containerized ship. Think a thing like the St. Louis Merchants Exchange. You don't see 
cots or shelter programs that they do in Volcat. So there's really no market signal that suppliers and buyers can really use to get around these quagmires. The ships, what are we now? 18,000, 22,000 TEUs, only a few ports can take them. The operators of those ships are in three big alliances. So every carrier in that alliance shares a ship. So how are you going to change to convert to a smaller port that can't take those containers off those massive ships? And we just have continued lemmings going over the coastline. What was it, Tom? Um, 100 vessels off of San Pedro this week? Yep. 100 vessels sitting. And there's no signals that we've got an ad in this industry that starts pointing to alternatives. In, in the, it's, it's just we just continue to pile them up. And until we get market signals and transparency like we have in the ag space where the market can adjust itself, I don't, I just don't see how we're going to get out of this quagmire anytime soon. Well, I don't either. And, and the plan that I read that Biden put forward on this would increase the container flow, 3,500 containers a week. And you, and you got 70 or 80 container ships sitting out there with the, uh, the average of 15,000 containers a piece, you're not going to make a dent in it. Now, on the eastern ports, Georgia, <laughs> they have some stuff they're doing um, that's starting to improve. They themselves, as GPA, are building their own inland ports that the port is doing to where you get boxes off the jetty, get it out of Savannah, take it up to North Georgia, North Carolina and other places closer to the distribution warehouses to allow some throughput. West Coast don't have that. And I don't think any of Kevin's neighbors in California want to have a new inland port right next to their, uh, I don't know, parachuting by air thing or whatever. <laughs> it's not the desire in, in the West Coast to, to create capacity off the, off the port. BNSF, through a, I'm an alumni of a work hard there. We tried to do a near dock facility in LA. We call it SKIG. We worked for 12 years to get that thing permitted. We had electric cranes. We had electric dray trucks. We would eliminate 2 million truck moves to the Inland Empire a year. We worked with the schools, the community, the whole thing didn't get done because of the pressure. They don't, they don't want the freight. They don't want California. That's the answer. So, <laughs> in I mean, I'm not, I just don't know how it's going to, if we're going to get out of thing anytime soon. Well, in the other ports so, that you mentioned, when you start talking about Savannah and Wilmington and Miami and Tampa and Houston and Mobile and, and even a, a New York, you know, they're just not going to be able to, to step up quickly enough to resolve this problem. They, they may add some incremental capacity that helps us three or four years down the road, but they're not going to do anything here. So here's my question. And as we roll back to investing in an inflation, Michelle drug me up to Nebraska Furniture Mart this weekend. Jordan's buying his first new house and shit. He needs a washer and dryer. And 
Oh boy, you know, Tom, he, he we got to go help him find it and pick, <laughs> you know, all the rules. So we're up there and the, the people tell us, well, you can't order anything. They're like, you want to order it? Hell, you're six to eight months out. It's worse now than it was a year ago. And I said, you got to be shitting me. And they're talking about a lot of different things. And I said, there is, and they just said, basically transportation, you know, just nothing's moving anywhere for them anyway, as far as getting things in from overseas or, you know, the ocean freight side of things. And like you guys are saying, then it gets logged up a little bit here. Once it gets to the terminal, like Tom said, I think we're getting the movement, but getting it over here, getting it to the terminal. And if that's the case, I said to Jordan, you extrapolate that out. And it's like, how the hell are these companies going to show good, strong earnings? Right. You know, maybe two quarters from now. Like got to be price. Like I'm trying to get yeah. my girlfriend a Bronco and I was asking my buddy who works at a Ford dealership. I'm like, Hey, what are the deals on these Broncos? And he's like, dude, honestly, between me and you, since we're friends, like, I've had people waiting eight months to get them. And even on like the egg swag side of things, I've been, I was waiting on a bunch of Carhartt stuff to come in in October. Um, and they had a date set and then, I looked on there that date. They said, no, nah, try again at the end of February. Like, gosh, dang. I'm just saying, like, we were already waiting in July. They're going to be a year out before they get anything. Yeah. I ordered a stove in Florida in uh, January this year. It's getting delivered this week. <laughs> well, you must not have the right contacts because I ordered a washer and dryer about 30 minutes ago, and it's going to be delivered Monday. <laughs> <laughs> you you need to talk to me, buddy. Slide <laughs> feet. Hey, we're getting one delivered, but it was a scratch and dent sale. We're just moving one right out of the floor. <laughs> On the car thing, I'm trying to get a Toyota Land Cruiser. This is the last year they're building them. Yeah, uh, the last quote I got was I, the cheapest quote I got was 25% above sticker. The worst quote I got quote I got was 100% above sticker. Wow. 100%. Almost $200,000 for an SUV. I, I got pissed one day and just took my truck. I had a GMC uh, pickup truck, 2500 Ran it over there to CarMax, and I'm not shitting you. They gave me almost six grand over sticker, and I had almost 20,000 miles on it. And I think I bought it maybe five grand under sticker. I couldn't believe it. And Jordan's like, so what are you going to do now, Dad? What are you going to drive? I said, I'm going to drive your truck for a while until the prices come down. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like that idea, but that's what's happening. So too funny, but yeah, I don't know, guy. I mean, it feels like then inflation is going to stay kind of hot for a while. I mean, it's got to. Think, it's got to. I would think with the freight rates, you know, as you as just Thomas and everybody else saying there that you know, I don't know how it can. I mean, you know, you all these rates, freight rates have gone through the roof, and you know, those shippers aren't absorbing that cost. You know, it's going to be passed on to everybody. When the fuel touches everything, you know, in our business, you know, the truckers, is, they're somewhat insulated, our long-haul guys with the fuel search, you know, gets passed on. However, I mean, that goes straight in that cost of the product. So, uh, you know, the idea of inflation, you know, being transitory or whatever, I don't see it. You know, I think it's it's here to stay for a while. How, how much longer can a lot of these guys hang on with, like, their – current pricing i know like a lot of my vendors now with like the big coolers and stuff they're telling me 
just in freight rates, they're just fighting to break even <laughs> on their products. Like they're making no money at all. Um, and they're like, eventually we're going to have to, which I know they're talking probably at the beginning of 2022. They're like, we're going to have to have price increases just because of freight more than material cost. And that's, there's, there's your inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, then you, I, you, you may or may not have seen this, but the Burlington Northern in their infinite wisdom is implementing a fuel surcharge January 1st. Uh, and our calculation is that, you know, that's going to, that's going to increase freight rates anywhere from $150 a car to $400 a car next year. And on yeah. ag, uh, that, that announcement just came out. I, I haven't, uh, I've seen it, but I haven't forwarded it to anybody. We're just, uh, trying to talk to them. In fact, I'm waiting on them to call me now to uh, to discuss when they're when if they're really going to implement that and at what strike uh, the highway diesel price will be. But I understand it's two dollars and fifty cents a gallon. Well, you know where that is now. So, well, the trucking deal is an index that just slides up and down. So I mean, it goes price of diesel goes up, so do the rates. You know, and there's about a, a week to ten day lag, but you know, and so it's a it's a very, very inflationary. And you take a look at fuel and what the prognosis is of, you know, WDI and Brent crude. Look at the, the investment in upstream oil and gas is down 40% from where it was, right? Right. Nobody's going to invest in it because it's dirty. We don't want to do that. We got the Dutch government soon shell being a CO2 in the Shell sells all of its Permian assets to another party, I think they sold to Conoco. They got some active investors on the Exxon board. Exxon. Exxon. John D. Rockefeller started Exxon. They're now, they won the proxy and they're going to advocate a green way. So the big boys aren't going to do what they normally do. When price comes up, they look to replace reserves, get more acreage, do more offshore, do more fracking. It's not going to happen. The only guys who are going to do it is OPEC, Russia, and privately owned companies that have got acreage in the cash to go frack some more wells and produce some more oil. We're going to see high oil prices for years. I, I would agree. You know, we, we ride a lot of frack, uh, frack sand haulers down in the Texas, Oklahoma area. And back, you know, when, the, we, when everything was go, three, four years ago when all the fracking and everything was going, we that, that business exploded. And you would think it would do that, you know, and then it tapers off, then it's come back, but it hasn't exploded like it did. And so you, that's a great point, Nate, because we just haven't seen that. So consequently, I think the, obviously the production is down and the oil prices are going to stay high. Yeah, I, I agree with Nate. I mean, Albert, all of the calls I've been on are basically most of your private equity guys, uh, you know, shit, they don't want to throw any money at uh, new oil exploration or oil right. infrastructure, really. I mean, they're wanting to be ESG and throw money, you know, where the millennials want to put their uh, 401k and their money and they want to try and save the world and save the planet. I told Todd, I said, when I saw that millennials are mentally distraught, like 70% have anxiety daily about our climate and climate change. I thought, holy shit. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to change some things. I mean, 
if they're going to push their money all in that direction, and that's what I'm saying, Tom, you're saying uh, tier five uh, locomotives uh, a lot more. Well, what's Mike, what's going to happen when they really have to pressure and transition these truckers into this electric world or, you know, you know, and, and I, I think it's coming. That, that electric truck is, is there now. So, you know, I think you're going to yeah. see it. You know, we've over the times we've had some trucking, uh, truck lines explore the net, uh, natural gas issue, you know, and uh, they use that as a, a very efficient. What, what they kind of like what you had said earlier, Kevin, some things they missed were when those trucks are in an accident, that natural gas explodes. Uh, you know, and so <laughs> it versus a, a diesel tank that, you know, just leaks. Uh, so that was right. a, a problem they had not really considered. So they backed off a little bit on that. But no, I think the electric truck will be, be coming, you know. Uh, you know, they're going to have to figure out some type of a battery and length of charge because you can't, you know, like we were saying, you know, the, the downtime right now, that trucker's not going to be able to pull over and, you know, charge his truck up for three hours while he's going to have to be a battery exchange. Something. Yep. Mike, what's the sticker on an electric truck? 300 grand? I'm sorry? What's the sticker price for an electric tractor, Class A tractor? What, 300,000, 350? I would say probably, Nate. It's wow. crazy. Of course, the new locomotives, the new diesel electric locomotives are, are almost to four million now. So uh, <laughs> if you, you start putting tier five on those, it's going to be four million. Yeah. So that just adds to the expenses. There adds you go. Make it more expensive for sure. So, oh, wow. Crazy. Aren't we sure are uh, unicorns and pink ponies today on any of this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> no. It doesn't look like it. I think it looks like, yeah, that's going to be some problems for a while. Definitely some change as we try to move uh, in this direction. I, on the I know, we, we always like, go ahead, Nate. Yeah. Well, what Tom was saying on the locomotives, like he was saying, there's some good things coming. Uh, Wabtech, which bought GE, they developed, they took, they took the locomotive and took out the generator, took out the diesel, and put a whole bunch of batteries in there, right? And then they run it in the consist. It was the trailing unit. And normally when a train decelerates, they do dynamic braking. They reverse the polarity of the traction motors. And that energy goes up to fans on the top of the locomotive and you blow it off. It makes heat and you blow it off. They're taking that now and putting that in the battery. And then when you come into an incline, or, or an area that requires more tractive effort, they draw off the battery instead of having to fire up and put to another throttle position on the diesel locomotives. And their first one saved 10% fuel for the consist. That's a big deal. And they've got a new one that's developing that's going to have double or triple the power, and they're saying it could be up to 30% fuel savings for the consist, that being the locomotive, the diesel locomotives in addition to the electric. So, and that can be done, that can be done today. So again, as Tom said, it's gonna be a little more expensive for the rail, but they've got some options available now that will, I think, help out fuel expense, which is gonna go sky high and help out the CO2 um, preferences of all of Kevin's millennials as 
well. So. Do you know when we asked both the BN and the UP about that, whether they would electrify part of their lines and use, you know, just electric locomotives or whether they would use battery powered? Uh, I guess the, the UP has a battery, and maybe that's the carrier that you're talking about. They have a unit that they're experimenting with right now. The BN was not optimistic about it at all. And we talked to some pretty senior people about this because this was a pretty big project. Uh, the UP uh, just said they're in the experimental stage. So they're years away from doing that. But, and, and I actually know of a locomotive that was, that is, uh, that one of the associates in the industry bought himself personally, uh, put it in use in California. He paid uh, about uh, $700,000 for it and he offered it to me for $100,000 less than a year later. So there's some, I mean, we're still in the experimental stage, but we're a long way from something that will work there. What we're not a long way away from though, it's different if you put compressed natural gas and, and use that in a train because they're already hauling hazmat materials. So they could put a CNG car or a propane car behind their, their consists and run it off of that and run a long way without having to refuel. And, and, but when I talked to them about that, they said, well, we, you know, we discussed it, but we're, we don't have a plan in place yet. So, so I don't think the railroads are really uh, proactively worried about this at this point. Yeah, huh. interesting. Well, sounds like higher prices, higher gas prices. We concluded that. Um, one of our questions we ask always, and we, we look at our farms like this. We, we look at our farms like a few of my buddies' dads owned a lot of gas stations, Tom, through Kansas City, and they owned, I don't know, 15 or 20. And some of my other buddies' parents owned a bunch of gas stations. It's like, what do you do if you own gas stations right here? and you're planning to leave them to your kids how you transition that how do you make that play and we're seeing the same in our farms you know a lot of our traditional farming is just being turned over upside down because of climate change problems with this that government regulations they're going to have to pivot and do something different so I, I i don't know i mean what happens with gas stations fueling stations how do you play that out well if all the things we're saying are true i think they need to turn them into liquor stores because i'm going to be drinking more <laughs> Bait and tackle. Right. Let's go. Bait and tackle. Yeah, bait and tackle and liquor. There you go. There you go. That's the model. Good. Shit, that's how Bass Pro Shop started. I like that plan. <laughs> Back of his dad's liquor store. Yeah. Well, yeah, I heard there was going to be a liquor shortage too, and I assure you, there's not going to be in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I got it covered. I went long liquor over the weekend. Exactly. Oh, too funny. So. Well, all good stuff. Jordan, Todd, you guys got anything? The only thing I have that I would have left is uh, you guys hear anything on this? We're seeing renewed biodiesel kind of stuff. Is that going to have any effect in this space besides going to electricity? Well, I think you guys know or are seeing, you know, what's happening in that space, particularly with soybean oil and, and the soybean processing plants and all the stuff that's being built on the BN High Line up there uh, in the Dakotas. Uh, you know, I think it's going to, I don't know how much they can produce, but it, it uh, and now who was it that ADM came out and decided that they could produce uh, jet fuel. So, uh, so if, if you're looking at that sort of thing, I mean, I, I think we're going to see a lot of, 
this kind of, kind of maybe the same thing that we saw when we when we had ethanol plants go in on the on the soybean side. You're going to see a lot more of that stuff uh, consumed locally. And so instead, from a rail standpoint, instead of moving so much corn, because the, you know, ethanol took a huge chunk out of the corn moving on the railroads, you're probably going to see the same thing on the, on the bean side. Whether or not that translates into really cost-effective fuel for jets or trucks or whatever, I don't know. I don't know. Michelle wanted to say hey. Hi, I haven't seen any. <laughs> she's, been, she's been busting my ass, Mike, Tom, to get down to Florida. I haven't been. I was supposed to come down last year, and how we never weighed it down. So, well, come on without him, Michelle. We got room for you. Come down. <laughs> oh yeah. You, you and Terry will have a ball. Yeah. Exactly. You said something about losing my tan, and I was like, "Well, we know how to fix that." I think that's right. Florida. Oh boy, you guys are no help. No help. <laughs> yeah. Right. Good so, to see you. Oh yeah. Hey, I I'm with you guys. I think it's a uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to say the least. I I don't you know I'm trying to rearrange and restructure i guess a few things as we see it play out but i i think you're going to see a lot of change in infrastructure i told jordan i like i like being long uh some infrastructure plays on companies that are going to change infrastructure my daughter's at uh columbia she's finishing up her master's in architect but shit you guys know columbia i mean they're they're pretty hardcore to the left and uh but she's she's done well up there and she's met a lot of interesting people but a lot of their push is how they're going to change these cities and how they're going to change things. And she made an interesting comment to me because I told her, you know, how rural America has just been decimated over the last 30, 40 years. And, you know, Todd and I and Jordan and I will travel around. I said, it's just sad to see these small towns in rural America and small town squares and shit, just everything, just decimated. And my daughter made an interesting point. There have been a ton of studies, I guess, in architect and everything. As we built these massive highway systems, and again, I never thought of this, as we built massive highway systems and cars and trucks were able to drive a lot, lot further than they ever were before, you decimated the rural, rural towns. You just passed them by. You know, we used to, we, you know, you guys, used to, when you take a road trip, you stop at every small town, travel down old 71, high, you know, you weren't on a super highway and you'd wind in and out and go to a diner and stop at a bar and stop at a Shit, that, that killed a lot of it. And I think that's very interesting to how you think, you know, if we play this forward and create more long, long distance vehicles that will never have to stop shit. There might not be anything between here and Chicago. You know, you just go straight to Kansas City, Chicago. There won't be nothing. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to think about, but we're seeing a lot more architect firms trying to redesign exits, uh, bridges, uh, change things for self-driving autonomous. I think they may have autonomous truck lanes, just, you know, where it's just nothing but 18 wheelers. You get some of this new design and new infrastructure spending, just, just redesigning how all of that flows and plays out. So I, I don't know. I find that pretty interesting. But I think there's yeah. going to be huge money. There's going to be huge money in that recreating green space in these urban areas. And Kennedy said right now in New York, they blocked off a whole six or eight block area where they're tearing down the building. It's just nothing but green space where they're allowing no cars, no nothing. Walk and walk their dog. And well, you can't even. I was just up there, and you can't.
park on the street in there, up there anymore. They turned it all into uh, all the restaurants. And they're leaving it Taking over the streets. And it's wow. like outdoor seating in the street, in the, the restaurant. Uh-huh. A you lot know, of areas. And Kennedy said, yeah, Kennedy told me the uh, urban planning people came and talked to them and they're not changing that back in a lot of areas. They're going to leave it because they don't like the cars and the emissions and they're going to cut back on all that. So I, 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 I see there's being, there's probably going to be quite a bit of money made in, uh, you know, in the concrete work and changing and redesigning and restructuring a lot of that uh, and retooling, I guess, a lot of things for electric and climate change and vehicle and transportation work. You know, that is just kind of a sidebar to that. Parking is probably one of the top five complaints in the trucking industry, you know, for the long haul driver. You know, he can't, there's no place to park. The rest areas are full and truck stops are full and they can't, you know, so they got to drive out a route or wherever to go to just park the truck. And that's a huge uh, problem for drivers as to why they're like saying we don't mess with it anymore especially as you get to the urban areas you know there's just you know if you'll notice going up early morning you're leaving kansas city or coming into it or anything those those rest areas are jam-packed with guys parked on the shoulder all the way up for you know a long ways so you know, I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it but we drove oh probably 15 or 1600 miles in the last couple of months and noticed the same thing i really didn't pay that much attention as to why, but there's some big rest areas in Florida and Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina, big truck stop rest areas and big truck stops. I mean, really big truck stops. And yet we saw them parked just on, you know, any access road that they get, get to, to get off the interstate and to get back on the interstate, they, they would just pull over and park on the access roads, just tons of them. Yeah, that's it. I'm in. Yeah. I, now that I think about it, I, Michelle and I talked about that too, Tom. I didn't know. Yeah. Mike brings that up. That's I'm seeing that a lot of places for sure. So interesting. So Mike, if, if there's such a constraint with driving in the urban areas, the insurance rates are going out of sight. They can't get a place to park. As we have more automated manufacturing, which doesn't require such a huge workforce, might that be opposite of Kevin's, uh, downer future of rural America, could we have more manufacturing outside of these congested areas that truckers and railroads can get to, to produce goods? Um, Maybe that might go that way. It doesn't have to be in a major urban area that required such a large workforce as it might might be in the future. I don't know. What do you think? We've seen that, you know, throughout the, you know, I grew up in Chillicothe, Missouri, and, you know, and they've got wire ropes, got a huge facility up there. There's a lot of cold storage up there. So, you know, you're seeing that moved out in about every, you know, rural town has some type of a major manufacturer in it now. So I think the, the manufacturers who have identified that have identified that correctly. You know, it's just the same thing. It's just that workforce, you know, but as you allude to Nate, if it can be automated then all the better but good point yeah i agree yeah that i agree with that for sure it's so if you can get to work yeah my last question for this esteemed panel of experts is if i am if i'm high value ag if i'm dry peas and lentils or ip 
I can't get boxes. I can't get truckers. How in the hell am I going to export my high value product that I need now get into to offset changes in the bean market and corn and all that? What the hell do I do now? We got that answer for you, Nate. You call Nexus 360. <laughs> I mean, Tom, did you, did you go back to transloading into boxcars again and, buck and, and then spin the super sacks at the ports on the outbound side in the break off vessels? I don't know. What do you think? I don't think that's going to work at all because I don't think the ports are going to even want to try to deal with break bulk anymore. Uh, you might go to a small port and get it, but you know it's going to be ocean freight's going to be a lot more expensive. And, you know that's one thing we haven't talked about is is how much ocean freight's jumped. But you know particularly on the bulk side, uh, you know what's happened on the container side. It's been all over the place, but container ocean freight's probably four times what it was uh, uh, two years ago, uh, from five thousand a container to twenty thousand a container. But you know uh, grain ocean freight rate, uh, particularly out of the Gulf and, and PNW, let's see, it's up. Uh, uh, 87% from the PNW uh, in the last year uh, from the Gulf is up uh, actually 87.9% of PNW, 87% and the spread is up 85%. So you now have a $36, $37 spread between Gulf and PNW ocean freight. So uh, all this congestion and all these uh, traumas that are going on have uh, hit the bulk freight market too. And bunkers. Don't forget bunkers on ocean freight. Big number. I don't have any good news for you. <laughs> no, Nate, I don't either. Yeah, I don't either. On the guys trying to ship, yeah, do their own. I, you know, I don't well, either. That's the last thing I would add is we we've canvassed the railroads over the last uh, sixty days, trying to find out what they're going to do on freight rates for next year. Uh, we're going to see a minimum of 3% and a maximum 10% pretty much across the board. 10% uh, increase on rail rates when you start putting a fuel surcharge on top of that. Boy, Whoa. that's a big number. That's a big number. We've never, we haven't, I don't think I've seen that in my career. Hmm. I always say too, you know, the rule of thumb uh, in our world was if you saw close to 100% increase or 90% increase and energy prices within a 12 month period, that's your go-to to just short the shit out of the stock market. And uh, that's been our, you know, that's been a play every time. And whether it was in the seventies with the oil crisis or when you had the break in 08, the, the killer to the US consumer was the plus $4 oil and how quickly it came about. This rebound, we're close. I mean, you get, you get average fuel costs up closer to 390, 380, 390, uh, I'm telling you, there's going to be some issues. And if you guys are saying you're going to see that type of hike and raise on the freight side, you're going to see some similar type of plays back to when we, you know, when we got hit pretty aggressively in a way, it's just, you, you buckle the U S consumer right now. It ain't the case, but just cause shit, nobody's going back to work. I mean, you've seen these, what you've seen the work numbers on back to the office. I mean, we're still at like 36, 37%. The only Texas is the only place that has anybody back at work and, Hell, they're still at like 50 in Houston and Dallas, 50%. Uh, our data comes in from those people that swipe the office key codes. And shit, they're at 36% in New York, 39% in LA and California. Florida is a little higher, but 
Texas is the only one close to 50%. So we, you know, hell, nobody's back at work. Nobody's going back to the office. And I don't, I don't Europe's see people back. going back. Europe, I don't it think doesn't feel like going back. I don't know. That's what oh. we're here for. All of our, yeah, all of our CEOs and lawyers that represent a lot of these big companies, they're just saying off the record, these people are shedding, shedding office space and they're, they're, you know, getting rid of that shit as quick as they can. And they're going to go to some smaller little offices where guys can, or gals can come in and maybe if the kids are driving them nuts at home, they got a little place to work every once in a while if they want a couple of days a week, but it doesn't feel like people are going to go back to the city. No, we, we're offering people back, you know, with part of Marsh, we, uh, they offer yeah. you three, you can come back full time. You can work, uh, part time coming in on a, transitory basis and then you can work from home remote and they're thinking that's going to be but i think they miscalculated i think more people are wanting to stay home remote me being old school i I don't think that's good for the long term i think it creates a culture that we're not familiar with uh you know where we kind of build a family culture within a work environment you know with training and uh communication and collaboration and things like that you can't do that over a Zoom call. You, you got to listen to somebody at the cubicle next door. I told some people in our HR, I said, you know, if you all think that's the way to go, why don't you raise your family that way? Give them all cell phones, tell them to go to their room, order order in their Uber Eats and go to the room and, you know, uh, tell them you'll give them kisses over the phone. And you go, I said, you know, there's, you lose that interaction. So, you know, I, it's all changing and, you know, I get yelled at because I'm 66 years old and don't get the new wave here. But I said, you know, I, I think we're missing something there. So, all right. Yeah, it's always the, no, it's always like you said, Mike, and it's the same thing I say to my kids. It's, it's shit. It's never the obvious. It's the things that you don't see and you don't equate for. And like you're saying, I, I a hundred percent agree. I, I don't see how any of the, there may be a few companies or select companies where you may not need to be at the office or this, this, that, but there is no way you can learn the intangibles and the small details and things that younger people need to learn from the guys that have the experience and wisdom. Uh, you, no way you can do that in a, well, in a how do you get promoted? I mean, if you're a upcoming, you know, mid manager and you want to get promoted and you're like going, well, I haven't had a chance to interact except how well you, perform on a zoom call you know there's no there's no beers after work or whatever and that's where you collaborate and that's when you get really smart when you go to that bar you know so uh, that's what i said that's where all my best deals have happened that's what i tell michelle (laughs) late night (laughs) i don't even know i agree but no it's on a younger standpoint either i mean i think (laughs) <laughs> that's what people want and that's what they want to stick with. I think they like rolling out of bed five minutes before work and <laughs> yeah. just don't going through the motions. And I have so many friends that like, I guess they got all those trackers on their computers or whatever. And like, they can tell when they're online and they got all their, they got all those rigs, they got them all rigged up and <laughs> they just disappear for three hours, but it looks like they're online. So Oh boy. Like we'll, we'll be out. I'm like, hey, what do you, now you got work or something? Oh, now I got my computer all rigged up. They think I'm working. So. <laughs> <laughs> I believe. 
<laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that COVID sure saved the golf industry because uh, oh. there's more the golf courses are full. And I guarantee you those employers think those guys are at work. For sure. For sure. So, yeah, I try. Hey, Mike, you'll get a kick out of it. Right at the beginning of COVID, Tom, I tried to buy a golf course out here in Kansas City, not far from us. And uh, Country Creek was the one I tried to buy. And yeah. I tried to just toss in, I tried to toss in a little bit of a low off. I mean, it wasn't much off of ass, just a little bit. And Michelle's like, what the hell are we going to do with this? And I said, well, shit, the way I'm seeing this, the guy had every tee box and every green. Uh, he had electricity and he had sprinkler systems on, on all. There you go. And it was right on, a, it was right on a highway out here. And I said, shit, I think I can contract and grow specialty crops in greenhouses. I can pop them right on these greens and tea boxes. There you go. on the golf side. <laughs> We're going to be in the parking business right here. Shit, sure, he didn't take it. And golf, yeah. He didn't take it and golf just blew up and I tried to make him another offer and he said, nah, you know, golf just got too busy again for him. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah crazy. Yeah, green fees down here, uh, you know, pretty pretty aggressive. Oh, I'm sure, for sure. So, crazy. Every country club's got a waiting list, you know, so. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, I'll bet. So, well, I won't take any more of your guys' time. I appreciate right. it for sure. Guys, thanks Jordan, for any Good Yeah, on I'm you. excited to see you guys. Yeah, everybody coming to FarmCon, I hope. I, I know a bunch of friends have called in, and guys are all pumped. We haven't seen each other in a long time, so hopefully I'll see everyone in January, and then I'm going to hopefully after that head down to Florida. So Come on down. Michelle, I hear you. I'll see you guys maybe. Mike, you're not here, are you? Are you in Florida? I, I'm right now. I'm in Leewood right now on this call, but I've got a place in Naples, so I'll go down there here. Well, let me know when you're down here. I'll come down and we'll have a drink. I, I'll bring the booze. i got plenty. Uh, all right. <laughs> you're on. <laughs> well, you know, come to Texas work, work. You know, you can come to our offices here. There's fish on the wall, and it's a nice place. So, uh, come down. To <laughs> okay, love to. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank all you. Right. I sure appreciate it. Miss Sandy, right. guys. Talk to you yeah. soon. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah.